Jesus has a heart for you. He came to rescue us from darkness, to bring hope to the hopeless, to reconcile marriages and families, to make the dirty clean, to heal the brokenhearted, and to give us new hearts. These are the things that make Jesus' heart beat faster. Hey, church! What's up? Everybody good? Y'all happy? Glad to be here? I look at it this way. As Christians, we have more to celebrate than anybody else on the planet. Right? Amen. Yeah. Glad. Y'all are excited this morning, I can tell. Yeah. Um, hey, man. I am excited. I'm glad you're here. Um, it's it's going to be awesome, man. I, I have um, been looking forward to this day since last Sunday. Um, just thinking about what God's going to do. And again, praying that God moves in your heart today. Um, I want to welcome you if you're a first-time guest here. Glad you're here. Um, man, I've been praying for you all week. I don't even know your name, but I've been praying for you all week that God would do something great in your life and in your heart so that he can do something great through you for his kingdom. Um, we're going to continue this series called Heartbeat this week. We're looking in this series at the things that Jesus' heartbeat for, um, the things that really got him excited, the things that he loved, the things that, um, that if he were here today, man, when he started talking about them, his eyes would get bigger, his, his voice would pick up, and he would be um, so excited about them. And, and today we're going to look at this reality that Jesus desires to wake us up from religion, and move us into a relationship with him. Um, that's what God wants is a relationship. And we're going to be looking at that today. So Jesus' heartbeat to wake people up from religion and move them into this place of having a relationship with God. We're going to be in Luke chapter 14. If you want to take it, your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke 14. If you don't have your Bible, you can... Uh, Catch it on the screen above. We'll put it up there. Um, every week we're going to be in the Word, man. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible. You can go by our guest services table up here in the foyer. We'd love to give you a Bible. Um, and so that you can read the Word of God. We believe that the Word of God changes hearts and changes lives. And, and we want to uh, help you in that. So Luke chapter 14, verse 1. We're going to read through verse 6. Before we do that, and we have five salvations last Sunday. Five salvations, five people who went from death to life in Christ. Man, how awesome is that? And listen, I want to I want to explain something to you. If somebody like we don't usually do the whole with your eyes closed and head bowed thing, raise your hand, because I feel like if you're going to take a bold enough step to say I'm giving up my life and I'm going to live for Jesus, you ought to just go ahead and get uncomfortable because that is the Christian life of God putting you in an uncomfortable position. And, and so when we do this, man, we don't just count like hands that are raised or people that stand up. We talk to people and we confirm with people like, is this what you're wanting to do? Do you realize what this is? And, and we don't try to talk them out of it. But we do try to make sure like this is the reality of what you're saying because we don't want to mislead anybody. So when we say like five people went from death to life, we can't ever know for sure what's in somebody's heart. But I can tell you this, man, there's some evidence. There's some, some, the things that they say are leading us to believe that they did make a decision for Christ, man. And that is something we, we need to celebrate and we're going to celebrate um, as a church, seeing people who are born again, who go from death to life in Christ. Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Let's read these and we'll jump in. Verse 1, it says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your love and your grace. Thank you that you are here with us today, Lord. God, just empower your word through your Holy Spirit. Let it bring life to us today, God. To the one who thinks they've gotten so far away that you're, they're beyond your reach, Lord, I pray that they would realize how close you are. And they would turn to you. For the one God who thinks they've got it all figured out and they're the king of their own universe, I pray that you would humble them and bring them to their knees today, God. That we would all bow before you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that you would, God, do a great work in our hearts. We pray this and thank you for it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. All right, quick question. Got to take a little poll here. Um, how many of you would be willing to admit, since we are in church and we need to be transparent and honest, how many of you be willing to admit you're a little bit competitive? Anybody a little bit competitive? Yeah, I like you. I like competitive. Because here's the reality. Most of us in here today are competitive. Some people put up two hands. You are ultra, ultra competitive. And, and, uh, and, and most of us in here today, we are competitive in some way. And maybe your thing is not sports, but, but it's, uh, you know, in the classroom. Like nobody can make a better grade than you. Or maybe it's uh, just, just in whatever it is that you like to do. But there's something in you that you're just like, man, I love to compete. I can't stand getting beat. How many of you hate to lose? Oh, yeah. That's me too. I hear people say this all the time, especially at kids' sporting events. They're like, it's not if you win or lose, it's how you play the game. I'm like, uh-uh. <laughs> you need to play the game right, but you need to win, Jack. That's what I, that was a little Duck Dynasty for y'all. You need to win, Jack. Um, but you need to win. I mean, you know, and, and here's the thing. I, I just, I don't agree with the whole, like, everybody wins concept because it's just not life. And I remember going to the first um, ball game that my oldest son had. It was a it was a t-ball game, and we get out there, and literally, I was like, I was like, hey, um, the scoreboard's not on. And they're like, um, sir, we we don't keep score at this age. I was like, Dave, let's go. I mean, because. I'm like, what, 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 what kind of sport do you not keep score at, right? And so there's something in us that we love to keep score. We love to compete. We love to win. We hate to lose. And, and it's just kind of our nature. In fact, like, if you don't want to win, I don't want you on my team. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I love you, but, like, I'll take the other guy. Because we all want to win. We all want to succeed. We all, you know, we all, the scoreboard's important to us, isn't it? The scoreboard's important. How am I doing? Am I making it? I want you to back up with me. Thousands of years ago, almost 2,000 years ago, and even before that, there was a group of people called the Israelites. This is the Jewish people. They were the people that God chose to use to, to advance um, his purposes. They were a selected people, elected people that, that God had picked to use to bring the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, into the world. And God went to them. He actually went to a man by the name of Abraham and he established a relationship with Abraham. You begin to see that this covenant he makes or this agreement he makes with Abraham, he begins to establish a relationship. And in that we begin to see God's heart that what Adam and Eve screwed up in the garden when the relationship was broken because of their sin, you begin to see that God has a desire to reconcile it. It was always his plan. You can go to Genesis chapter three, verse 15. It's the first prophecy of the Christ that the woman would have a son or her seed would crush the head of the serpent. And we begin to see that from the very beginning, God had this desire to reconcile people. When you get to Moses, you see another covenant come in. God desired to reestablish the righteousness of his people that was also lost in the garden. So he makes a covenant with Moses. It would be what we call the law. And you go to Exodus chapter 20, you see the Ten Commandments. God says here, these are the things you have to keep. But people being people, ten wasn't enough, right? And we've looked at this before in this church. You can go back and find it in an old sermon. But 10 wasn't enough. And, and, and we looked at the fact that we've all broken all 10. We've broken every one of them. And yet they felt like they needed more. They didn't feel like 10 commandments to keep was a big enough scoreboard for them to go by. So this is what they did. They made up another 603 rules to go by to make themselves righteous before God. 613 rules. Here's the crazy thing about that. Most of us in here today couldn't, couldn't tell us the, the Ten Commandments, right? So what I thought we would do is we would go one by one and allow everybody to say the Ten Commandments. Is that all right? Because most of we don't even know the 10. How, how could you come up with another 603? And these were things that if you were going to be a good Jew, if you were going to be a good Israelite, if you were going to be pure and you were going to be clean and you were going to be holy, you had to do those things. That became their scoreboard. Here's the problem for them. Every morning of their lives that they woke up, they were behind 613 to nothing. Would that not be a frustrating way to live? Yes. 
It'd be incredibly frustrating. And we could look back and, and look at Abraham today and hindsight's 2020. And we would say, wow, man, he was, God was trying to establish this relationship. How did y'all jack that up? How could you take 10 things that God wanted you to do and make it 613? But here's the problem for us as Christians. We can look back and say that, but you and I do the same exact thing. We create our own scoreboard that tells us whether or not we're accepted by God or not. And that is the nature of religion. That's the nature. That is Satan's number one tool or his number one trap to get you distracted from the one thing that really matters, Jesus, onto a bunch of rules and different things that cannot produce life. Amen. Yeah. Woo. Preach it, Brandon. Woo. It's the one thing. If, if there is a big trap, listen, I, when I played baseball at Southern, you've heard me talk about this before. I didn't play a lot. I watched a lot of baseball, had good seats. That's about what it came down to. And, but I realized this, that no matter what level you were at, one thing that all pitchers had in common is if they thought there was a pitch they could get you out on, they would consistently throw it. You had a hitting coach that said pitchers aren't very smart. They'll just throw the same pitch over and over. They get you one time. Go back up there and look for that pitch because they're coming back to it. And this is the one pitch that Satan's been throwing since the beginning of time. Is that if I can get your eyes off of God, get your eyes on yourself and a bunch of rules to follow, I've got you. And so many Christians are waking up as if you were an Israelite trying to keep 613 rules. And no wonder we're frustrated. No wonder we're miserable. No wonder we don't want anything to do with church or Christianity. Because listen, it's just about rules. You can go anywhere and get rules. But God came to give us life. And we look at it and we say, how did they screw it up? Because they bought into this lie of religion. And see, here's the thing I hear a lot is people will say, well, isn't religion a good thing? Because, you know, years ago, people would say, well, I heard old so-and-so, he's not drinking anymore. He got some religion. Y'all ever heard people say something like that? He got religion. And, and, and so it's kind of this concept of, of that religion is, is a good thing. And, and, and this is what I would tell you. Religion is not the good thing. Faith in Christ is the good thing. There's a lot of religions, but there's only one path to life. And I'm sorry, and I know we live in this culture that wants to tell us that there's many paths to one truth. Bullcrap. And I know you're going to send me an email or you'll come up to me after the service. I don't care. There is one way to life and his name is Jesus. Here's the reality. Every other religion puts God on a mountain and God says, come get me, climb your way up the mountain, but it's a mountain you can't climb. It doesn't matter how hard you work. You can't climb the mountain. Christianity is the only religion and it is a genius plan that no man could have come up with in which God says, you can't get to me. I'll come to you. That's the glory of the gospel and it's the glory of God that when you are in a miserable state, when you had dug a pit so deep you couldn't get out of it, God says, I'm not going to kick you while you're down. I'll give you a hand and lift you up out of the pit and I'll raise you up to be my child. And don't let anybody take your eyes off of that fact. That's why we as Christians have more to celebrate than anyone on the planet. My prayer today is that we would turn our eyes from religion and, 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 and this is thought that somehow we can earn our way to God and we begin to focus on rules and things we've got to do and being a good Christian and we put our eyes on Jesus. I want to give you a quick definition of religion. I came up with this. If you don't like it, make up your own relig- definition of religion. It's a self-centered pursuit for the approval of God and man that is mentally accepted but is void of heart transformation. It's a self-centered pursuit for the approval of God and man that is mentally accepted but is void of heart transformation. So here's the thing. There are people everywhere that will say, yeah, I believe in God. 
But they'll say, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. And mentally, they say, yes, I believe that. But the problem is, it's never gotten here. When the Bible speaks of our heart, it literally speaks of the core of our being. And I wonder how many people in here today have for years and years mentally assented to the fact that God is. Have mentally assented to the fact that he, he, Jesus is who he says he is. And yet we've never really surrendered our lives to a place of allowing God to come in and change our hearts. And so all of your life is spent trying to prune off bad fruit instead of letting God deal with the root of the issue, which is our jacked up heart. And it's for everybody in here. There's not one person in here right now that if God looked at your heart apart from Jesus, he would be impressed. Not one. We're all in the same predicament. We're all in the same place. My question for you today and the question I want to answer in just a few minutes. Don't laugh at that a few minutes. Is are you in a relationship with the living God? Or are you religious? Is it a mental thing? Or is it in your heart? Has it changed your heart? Do you know him? Or listen, are you just keeping score? Every morning when you wake up, do you know him and do you rejoice in him? Or are you just keeping score? Look back at Luke chapter 14, verse 1. It says one Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. This week I was reading that verse and and I planned on preaching another verse. I read this and man, my heart just like exploded, not from French fries, but from the word of God. It just like, and when I read the word watch, I thought that's the nature of religion. In fact, it's a huge part of religion is that we begin to watch, we begin to to, to measure ourselves against other people's behavior or even our own behavior. Was it good enough? Am I good enough? And our acceptance begins to be based off of how good we are. I want to tell you three types of people that religion creates. And the first one comes out of this verse and it's the chip stacker. I got some crazy names today. You don't want to go to sleep just because you want to hear my next names. But it's the chip stacker. And so you come to this, this, uh, this thing of Christianity, you come to Christ, and it's always about trying to stack more good chips than bad chips. And this is really the Christianity of our culture. Is if, if I'm good, I'll be okay. In fact, let me, let me read you five things that I want you to hear, and I want you to ask yourself if this sounds familiar. Does this sound like your brand of Christianity? Number one, it's about not doing bad things. Right? How many of you, at least at some point in your life, looked at Christianity and said, well, it's about not doing bad things? Right? Yeah. Y'all gonna raise your hand? I ain't gonna come out there and hit you. Yes. It's about not doing bad things. It's about appearance. Hello. Most of the time that I went to church growing up as a child, it was all about how you looked, right? It was about what people thought of you. Every, listen to this. How about this for a Christian quote? Put this on a t-shirt. Every good person goes to church. Right? But I knew some hellions in church. Going to church didn't mean anything. It just meant you gave up an hour of your Sunday. And a lot of people, you just went to 830 service so that you could get out and get to the golf course quicker, right? Let's get this out of the way. Because every good person goes to church. Number three, the point of Christianity is to make me feel guilty. Right? In reality, because when you stack the chips and they didn't add up and you hadn't done more good than bad... You immediately felt guilty. And tying along with that, the point of church was to make me feel better. I really messed it up this week. Come on, kids, we need to go to church. So the point of Christianity was just made me feel guilty. I'll go to church. It'll make me feel better. I did my duty. Check it off the list. Okay, I'm good. Let's go do it again. And that becomes so much of our thought. How about this one? Number five, last one. If I do more good things than bad things, God will be pleased. If I can just do more good than bad, I'll make him 
be pleased. And so you spend all of your life just stacking chips. There's a lady in the very first book of the Bible that I want to tell you about. Her name's Leah. And Leah was the daughter of Jacob. If you want to flip over uh, to Genesis chapter 29, you can. I'm going to read about five verses out of there. But Leah was the daughter of a man named Jacob. Jacob had, uh, or he was, she was married to a man named Jacob. Jacob had two wives. It was okay back then. Susan's not having none of that, right? But she was married to Jacob. Jacob had another wife named Rachel. The Bible says that Rachel was beautiful. You would look at Rachel and you would think, man, she's got it all together. She's perfect. Jacob desired to marry Rachel. He went and worked for her father, Laban. Laban, I don't know how you say it. He went and worked for him for seven years to get Rachel. On the wedding night, he goes and they consummate the marriage. If your kid's in here, that's too big of a word. They don't understand anyway. The next morning, he wakes up and Leah's laying next to him. He's like, whoa. He goes back to Laban, Laban. Because somebody will be like, you don't even know how to say Laban. You don't either. And so he goes and he's like, I told you I would work for Rachel. So he gives him Rachel. He works another seven years. And then we see in the marriage, you see where that Rachel and um, Leah, they're constantly going against each other. They're constantly stacking chips against each other. And the thing I want you to really see in this is how it affects Leah's behavior. Listen to this in uh, Genesis chapter 29, verse 31. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved. Listen, the Bible says that Rachel was beautiful. The Bible says Leah had weak eyes. Draw your own conclusions from that. But listen, it was just like a nice way of saying she wasn't Rachel. She wasn't Rachel. And it says that when she was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Reuben sounds like the Hebrew word, for he's seen my misery. So he actually, actually names this thing of God. Hey, he's seen my misery and my husband, he's going to love me. Then it says, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I'm not loved, he gave me this son too. So she named him Simeon. And Simeon means one who hears. And then again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I've borne him three sons. So he was named Levi, which means attached. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time, I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. It goes on to say that Rachel couldn't have children at this time. So she gave um, one of her servants to Jacob. And she began to have children for her. And in those days, it was an accepted practice that that was just as if the other woman had given birth. And so she began to do these things. But the interesting thing about it is that with every child that Leah had, she thought maybe now. I've done enough to make my husband love me. Maybe now I've stacked enough chips in my favor that he will love me. Maybe now I've done enough to make myself as good as my sister. And this is the thing I know about people who are sitting in here right now. So many people in here, you're still living in this place of trying to please somebody. And every action, every thought, everything that you do is based on this thought. If I do it well enough, someone will be pleased. I don't know if it was your father who who's never was pleased, who never was satisfied. And so you took that and you transferred it to our heavenly father. And you said, there's no way he could be pleased in me unless I do enough good thing. I don't know if it was your mother who was always pushing you to be something you aren't or something you didn't want to be. I don't know if it was a brother or a sister who was always seemed to be better than you. And so you're still trying to make up for that. I don't know. Listen, if you tried out for a team and you didn't make it. And so listen, you're 40 years old and you're still trying to make the high school football team it's kind of funny but isn't it sad that so much of our lives are spent trying to stack enough chips to make ourselves okay 
trying to rehearse old stories a little bit better than they were so we feel better about ourselves. Still trying to please people and make them happy. And what happens is you've taken that same exact thought and you transferred it to God and you say, there's no way that God can be pleased with me if I'm not perfect. Guess what? You're not. And you're not going to be. And that is the point of Jesus coming. What's amazing is finally Leah gets to the fourth child that she has. And she says, now I'm just going to praise the Lord. And for a moment, she gets it right until what? Rachel starts to have her own children. And then she goes and she actually manipulates Jacob to sleep with her again so she can have another child. And here's the thing that happens so many times for a brief moment. We'll get to this place where we've surrendered to the Lord and everything is good. And we finally know he's accepted me until something triggers that same old thought. And you begin to try to please God again. Apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. Straight out of the Bible. It's not about what you can do. It's about what God has already done. And when we, by faith, take hold of Christ, God imparts to us a righteousness that is freely given. It is not earned and cannot be earned. And then listen, instead of waking up every morning with the score 613 to nothing, why don't we just wake up and celebrate the fact that the scoreboard's been destroyed and that we have victory in Christ and quit putting so much pressure on ourselves to think we've got to be perfect and just start worshiping him. Because this is, and see, Christians, they, people don't want you to know that. They don't want you to know you're forgiven. Because we're scared to death that if we tell you you're forgiven, that if you just pursue Jesus, that you'll just go out and do whatever you want to do. And I'm here to tell you today, that's not going to happen. Because if he's in you, he will guide you and he will lead you. No one, I got to stop for a second. I got a brown paper sack. No one grows closer to Jesus and becomes less holy. Right? No one grows closer to Jesus and loves people less. It is enough to be in love with Jesus and to pursue him. Blow up the scoreboard. God loves you. If you are in Christ, his wrath has been appeased. If you are in Christ, your sins are as far as the east is from the west. Rejoice in that. Celebrate that. And you'll live a different life because you're abiding in him. Number two, the second thing. Gosh, I got to hurry. Y'all got to listen faster. Number two. The second thing that it produces, that religion produces, is the king. Religion produces the chip counter or stacker. And religion produces the king. Here's the thing that so many people in here right now, you're still in a place of thinking that you can outscore God. That somehow I can do it. That somehow I I can... I can make it all right by myself. How's that working for you? Not good. Not good. Because you're a terrible king. I build you up, I tear you down. That's how it works. We make terrible kings. There is only one king. His name is Jesus. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. One king. But we try to put ourselves in the place of the king. It's how some of us live in this way that somehow I can still outscore God. Somehow I can look God in the eye. Somehow I made myself equal to him. How ignorant, how foolish, how prideful, how arrogant, how haughty. And the Bible is clear that pride goes before destruction. And the one thing I can promise you is that if we do not submit to the king of kings, Things will not go well. I would tell you this, to try to think that somehow we can score with God, that we can keep up with what he does and who he is, and somehow we can raise ourselves to his perfection. 
It would be like standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon with a shovel and thinking that somehow I can fill it in. It's exhausting just thinking about it. And yet when you're the king of your own life, it is exhausting. There was a man in Daniel chapter 5. You can turn there. His name's Belshazzar. Everybody say that, Belshazzar. I think I did say that one right. Belshazzar. It's kind of like saying Mufasa. It's just fun. It's just fun. So it's like Belshazzar, Belshazzar. Say it again, say it again. Belshazzar. And so you come to this man by the name of Belshazzar and, and he's living it up, man. He's got his kingdom. In fact, in chapter five of Daniel, he throws this incredible party and he invites all these nobles and all these people. And he's really showing off how awesome he is and how awesome his kingdom is. And, and he calls everybody in and, and he goes and he actually takes uh, the gold and silver that he had robbed from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And they're drinking all out of these, these cups of silver and cups of gold. And they're worshiping the gods of gold and silver. And, and he's, he's having it, living it up. And then all of a sudden, he looks over on the wall and a hand is writing a message on the wall. Now, like, like, like this hand, a big hand writing up with big words on a wall. And we've heard the saying, have you seen the writing on the wall? Well, this is the writing on the wall. And God sends him a message and nobody can interpret it. So they go and they find Daniel who can interpret it. And, and they say, Daniel's got wisdom. He, he worships the God, the one true God. Bring him in, let him interpret it for you. And I want to read to you what happens when Daniel begins to interpret this. And he's speaking to Belshazzar. He says, oh, Belshazzar, you have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this, he knew what had happened to his father, that God had humbled his father. He said, instead, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have the goblets from his temple brought to you. And you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. In other words, you're mocking God. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Many, many tekel parson. This is what the word, these words mean, many. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at that Belshazzar's, com, com, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. When you see this, you see Daniel come to him and he says, this is what the Lord is telling you, Belshazzar. You've built a great kingdom. You've got great things. You've done a whole lot of good stuff. But the reality of it is, it's all coming to an end. It's all done. When you read these words, many, many, tekel, parson. They're actually words that were used in Aramaic to denote different weights. And when this message is written, what God is telling him is that you've been numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. In other words, Belshazzar, here's the reality flash for you. You can mock me. You can laugh at me. You can prop yourself up as king. But at the end of the day, I've weighed you and you've been found wanting. And I will tell you this, people, and I tell you this not to shame you, but hopefully to wake us up from this religious slumber. You and I have been weighed on the scales of God apart from Christ and found wanting. We don't equal up. And every one of our faiths is the same as Belshazzar. At the end of the day, we're weighed and we're found wanting. And at the end of the day, our kingdom, our little kingdom that we work so hard to build is destroyed, obliterated. I wonder how many of us are working for our kingdom. When you go back and you look at Luke chapter 14, verse two, there's a man with dropsy. It was a disease where fluid would get into the tissues and they would be swollen. There's a man with a disease laying before him, but they're so worried about their little kingdom. They're so caught up in this religious trap that they don't even care about the man. 
All they care about is their kingdom. And I wonder how many of us in here today that that is the story of our life. That there are broken people all around us. It's okay, just don't touch my kingdom. They're hurting people all around us. It's okay, just don't touch my kingdom. Here's the truth about religion. It allows you to be self-serving and still feel godly. And I wonder how many of us are living in this way as if for some reason we need to prop ourselves up as king when we make a terrible king. And there's a king who is full of love and grace and mercy who would rule and reign in our lives who would fulfill us, who would satisfy us, who would give us a better kingdom. Why would we not surrender to that king? Because I can tell you this, we may be the king of our own kingdom, but when we walk into the kingdom of God, apart from Christ, we are found wanting. Here's the thing that I would encourage you to do. Why not look to the king of kings, the real king, the one true king who, listen, didn't just step on the scales to, man, anybody else hate scales? Yes, I hate scales. Hate scales. There's one in our bathroom. It stares at me every morning. Then I go get in the shower and I'm like, why are you looking at me? Don't start nothing. Won't be nothing. I'll smash you. But here's the reality, guys. Jesus didn't just step on the scales. He didn't just fill in the gap. Jesus destroyed the scales. He took them away so that there's no need for scales. So why do we worship the scales? Why are we always trying to fill in what was wanting when the only way it happens is through the reality of God? Here's the thing, guys. We surrender to the king. Man, his entire kingdom is our inheritance. Or you can keep being the king of your own life and watch it be destroyed before your eyes. There's a better king. That's the king I want to surrender to. And that's the king I want to live for. That's the king I want to give my life to. And I hope you will too. The third one. I have to explain this one. The third type of person that religion creates is the hoarder. Luke chapter 14, verse 5. This is so much of the place where the Jews were. When you begin to look at this, you really see this in their lives over and over. And Jesus calls them out over and over on this mindset. The Bible says in verse 5, then he asked them, Jesus asked them, the Pharisees, these religious people, these Jewish people who could care less that there was a suffering man right before them. They were more worried about man-made laws and tradition than they were releasing people from the kingdom of darkness to bring healing to this man. I would say this, that the kingdom of God has got too many little kings and not enough servants. He says, then he asked them, If one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. Basically what he's saying is, listen, you made up a rule that it is okay for you to go get your ox or your son out of a ditch on the Sabbath, but it's not okay to heal a man on the Sabbath. In other words... You want something for yourself that you're not willing to offer to other people. How many of us are in that place today? That we want something for us, but we don't want it for other people. I call it a hoarder because it's where you want it all. You want to keep it all. Not willing to give any of it away. And that is the trap and the lie of religion that I can keep it all for me and give nothing away. Let me ask you this. How many of you want forgiveness but refuse to give it to other people? How many of you want the grace of God on your life but then condemn others for their mistakes? Answer me this. How many of us 
look at the cross and we see that Jesus paid the ultimate price for us, that God put his judgment on Jesus because Jesus took our sin. And we want to celebrate the fact that God doesn't judge us because of Christ, but we're so quick to look down our nose and judge other people. We see it all the stinking time. Christians who think they're better than themselves, I will tell you that is not Christianity. That is bigotry. And it is not the heart of God. I don't care where you've been, what you've done, or who you've done it with. You have not outrun the love of Jesus. And if there is no other place you can go, and I'm sure there are, you can come here. And there are people who will stand between you and the backbiting, backstabbing people who masquerade as Christians. How many of us walk in Sunday after Sunday and we walk by people in the parking lot when it's 110 or 32, it don't matter. There was a, one Sunday, it was raining sideways. I looked out there, there, there it is. <laughs> week after week, you walk by people in the parking lot. You walk by people who are handing you bulletins. You drop your kids off with probably the best children's department in the history of children's departments. All the people in the orange shirts. That's right, that's right. Denise is like, hey man, I work in there. I work in there. And week after week, you walk by them. Week after week, somebody helps you find a seat. Week after week, somebody will point you to the bathroom. Not just point you to the bathroom, but walk you to the bathroom. And there's a point where that becomes awkward. (laughs) Walk you to the bathroom and you're served and it's given to you. And yet all we do is week after week, we just consume and we consume and we consume and we never invest. That's not the heart of God. That's not what God desires. And listen, I don't say that. Don't say that to tick you off. I promise that's not my job as a preacher. I say that to say, listen, if all you do is consume and you never give, There's something wrong at the heart. I would even go so far to say, your heart is not in the right place. Because the heart of Jesus is not, give me, give me. The heart of Jesus is whatever I receive, I'm giving back. And there's something wrong with our heart when we can walk in week after week after week and we watch people who are serving the kingdom, who put their hand to the plow, who says, I'm not looking back and we're going to reach people for Jesus and I can walk by them and not go, you know what, I should be reaching people for God. You say, well, I serve outside the church. But listen, Ephesians 3.10 is very clear. That God has chosen the church to display his manifold wisdom. Do you really think there is a higher priority than his bride, the church, to display his glory and his goodness? No. And I, I get so excited when I think about the potential of the church. I get so excited when I think about what it looks like for a group of believers to say, we're going to just put our hands to the plow. We're going to plow and we're not looking to the left and to the right. And we're going to be a unified group of people for the glory of God surrounding the gospel. And we're going to charge the gates of hell and nothing's going to stop us because Jesus promised we won't be stopped. What does that look like when we finally surrender and say, God, I don't want to consume. I want to give it's unstoppable it is unstoppable for some of us this hoarding mentality is why you can't give it's why you can't give because you gotta have it all and listen the big lie in church is money won't make you happy well it's because you're not spending it right money can make you happy It just doesn't last. It's fleeing. Why are you holding on to something that somebody else is going to be enjoying in 60 years? And so here's the thing I know. And there are a lot of people in here that every time I bring up money, you get mad. And I'm fine with that. 
Just realize the reason you get mad is because I'm messing with your God. Period. Your heart is in your wallet. And you can trust my heart or not trust my heart, believe my heart or not believe my heart. I don't want you bound to your wallet. A dollar bill is a pitiful thing to live for when God loves you and died for you and created you and has given good purposes for you to accomplish and things for you to do. Why would you settle for that? Why? There's so much more. There's so much more to God. I want you to understand that, man, you live by the scoreboard and you're going to be miserable and you're going to die miserable. You live by the scoreboard, you'll never find life the way God desires it. You can stack all the chips you want. You can prop yourself up as the king all you want to. You can hoard everything you want to and you're never going to find happiness and true joy. But you surrender to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. When the light comes on and you realize Jesus is who he says he is and I'll give it all to him. Whatever it takes, I'll follow him. You begin to live. Not for a fleeting moment, but for eternity. As you hold on to him, he begins to give life to you. Susan came home the other night and she said, Brandon, something wrong with my car. Oh, you just got that thing about a year ago. What's wrong? And she's like, there's some smell coming from the car. I was like, yeah, it's three boys. That's what the problem is. And she's like, no, it's something under the hood. Can you go out? And she's like, go smell by the right front tire under the hood. And so I walked out there and I, like, I didn't even have to get close. And I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, something's dead. And you know, something was literally dead. And so I was like, well, let me go get my flashlight because that's the manly thing to do. Not to admit that I was kind of scared. I didn't know what it was going to be. Like, open it up and there's a human hand. I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know what was going to be there. So I went and got a flashlight and I'm looking all up under the hood and I could smell it. I could sense it. I knew something wasn't right, but I couldn't see it. And so I crawled up under the car and I'm looking, I'm looking everywhere. I can't find anything. This has been several days. It still smells. I'm like, for the love, can you just dry up and go away? I don't even know what's causing it. And, but I could smell it and I could sense it. And this is the thing I know so many of you have been living life in this way where you sense that something's not right. You sense that something's dead on the inside and you can smell it. You can sense that you know it's there but you haven't found the answer. And I'm telling you today that the answer is Jesus, not a set of rules, not a set of regulations. It is Jesus. And when we come to him and we abide in him and we cling to him and he gives us life and we begin to bear fruit, it's so much better than a bunch of rules and a bunch of people looking down their nose at you. And we begin to worship and we begin to live. And man, it is freeing and it's not binding. And we find out that what the Bible says and what so many people have tried to tell us for years is true. We got to hurry. I want you to see, we got a video, man, of a guy who sat right back there in the back corner, my left, your right, one day, and the light went off. And he had an aha moment. And I want you to check this video out. I've always been able to know that God's talking to me based on this pounding that I get in my chest. And the first time that I experienced that was in fourth grade. And we went to a church a lot like Connection. And we've always been a a very Christian household. My mom sang in the choir, my dad was a deacon, the the whole nine. And the invitation came up in church one day and I felt like I was supposed to go up there. I mean, it was very textbook. I felt my stomach clench, I felt my chest started to pound. And so I went up there and prayed and then got baptized the next Sunday. And then nothing really changed. And I, I think I was, since I was in fourth grade, I didn't really understand what I had done. Like I said, my life never really changed. Nothing really different happened to me. And because of that, and because I was so young and I didn't understand, I think it led to a lot of doubt. And for about a year and a half, every Sunday was just, do I need to go back up there? Do I need to, do I need to sit here and pray? If I don't go up there, do I go to hell? Just that, that whole thing. And so 
that really, really got to me and I just got sick of worrying about it. And so I just quit. I just quit worrying about it and moved on with my life. And so fast forward to senior year of college, which was last semester, and I'd been going to Connection for about six months. And then I started to get that that feeling again. I started to get that pounding in my chest that the invitation and my stomach would tighten. And I think I have to go back up there. I'm supposed to go back up there. And I, but I kept telling myself, no, I, I'm just gonna go talk to somebody in a room and nothing's gonna change. It'll be just like last time. And it'll lead to all this doubt. And I just, I got sick of it. So I quit going to Connection so that I wouldn't have to feel like that anymore. And I went to a bunch of other churches around Statesboro, which were all great, but you need to go where God is talking to you. And I wasn't doing that. And this whole time, I'm, I'm dating a girl who I'm in love with, but she's Catholic. And so we're, we're disagreeing on a lot of very important points in our faith. And I'm about to graduate, and I don't have a job waiting for me. And so it was just a really, um, a really tough transition period for me. And so it comes down to the last Sunday of the semester. Uh, so it was about December 10th. And I knew I needed to hear God. And so I knew I needed to go back to Connection and just, just go. And I said, you know what, I'll just, I'll just sing my teeth in and just go. And so I went, I listened to the sermon, and here comes the invitation again. And so I started, I mean, you know, the lights go down, the music comes up, and, and I started to get that, that tightening in my stomach, and my chest starts pounding, and I think, here we go again. And I just, I just stood my ground, and I just said, no, I'm not going up there. And so the invitation ends, and I, I immediately felt regret. I immediately said, I should have just done it. I should have just sucked it up and gone down there. Well, sure enough, Brandon gets back up on stage, and he says, I feel like someone's here who's not responding to what God's telling them. And I'm just like, dang it, Brandon, sit down, stop talking to me. And But I knew, I knew he was talking to me, and so... I just did it. I raised my hand and I was way back in the back and I was told to go around and start talking to a connector. And I talked to a, a connector named Matt Wise and he told me a lot of great stuff and we just sat there and talked for about half an hour. And he said, do you feel like you've been, you know, do you feel like you've been saved and your life has been recommitted to Christ? And I said, no, but I feel like this was absolutely necessary. And so I graduate from college and I go home to Atlanta for Christmas break. And I, it's funny, I started talking to my girlfriend again and we decided that it just wasn't right for us to date. We didn't want to get married and raise a kid and have two different opinions about Jesus. And so we broke up and it was, it was really heartbreaking and it was some rough nights. And I, you know, you can talk to your family about it. You can talk to your friends about it, but at two o'clock in the morning when they're all asleep and I'm still up, it was just me and God. God was the only person left that I could talk to. And I think when he's the only person left to talk to, that's when you hear him that much clearer. And I knew I was supposed to start reading my Bible. So I started reading my Bible, reading through the book of John. And at that point for me, it wasn't so much about learning new things from the Bible. It was just about spending time with God. And right along that time, um, Passion in the Georgia Dome had started. And Passion was just a a gathering for college students to learn more about Christ. And I had never gone, but my brother loved to stream it online. And so we streamed it online and we watched it. And I heard John Piper speak and I heard Francis Chan speak. And I loved it and I knew I had his book called Crazy Love on my bookshelf. But of course, I had never read it. And it's funny, I hadn't read my Bible in years either. And I mean, you know, I was raised in the South, so I have like six of them in my room. but. I had never even picked up this book, and so I picked up Crazy Love also, and I started reading it, and it totally redefined what it meant for me to fall in love with Christ, and it showed me that, you know, don't do things for Christ out of a sense of duty or because you have to, but, but when you love someone, you do things for them even though it's difficult, and Christ is the same way, and I had never thought of it like that. And since then, my, uh, my ex-girlfriend now and I have, have really come to terms and, and realized that breaking up was exactly what was necessary for us to both grow and to lean on God. Because when you lean on God, He, he picks you up and straightens you out. And I've realized now that I'm in His hands and it's a really good feeling. And I guess from fourth grade to now, what I've learned, and it sounds cliche, but it's absolutely true, is that 
his plan is perfect and that he is real and it feels it feels very good to be in his hands and to realize that it's the gospel is becoming mine for the first time and that's a fantastic feeling What is so cool about that is that a light went off right back there one Sunday. And here's the crazy thing. As hard as he fought it, he couldn't get away from it. Some of you have been fighting it and fighting it and fighting it. And you've been stacking chip after chip. And you've been trying to be the king of your life. And you try to hold it all in. And today, I know this people in here who for the first time the light went off and you realize I don't know him all I've known are rules and regulations I've known law and I've done the right stuff but I haven't known him yet today he invites you to know him the scoreboard is gone it was nailed to a cross the scales are gone they were nailed to a cross You've been given more than you could ever hold in by Christ. Today, the question is, will you receive what he offers? You know what I'm going to ask? Today, you want to nail that down. And you say, by faith, I want to know Christ. to surrender my kingdom for a better kingdom I want to quit being king because I recognize a better king I want a relationship with God and I realize he's forgiven me he nailed my sins to a cross to punish them and do away with them and you're like Ryan right now you know in your gut that you're supposed to respond the question is will you I'm gonna count to three man listen count of three you want to receive Christ you're tired of the rules you're tired of the regulations you've never had a relationship with Jesus and today you want to make that happen simply by receiving what he offers on the count of three I want you to stand up on the count of three you stand one two three you stand to your feet you know today is the day listen everybody's looking around it's the greatest decision you'll ever make. Who needs to make that today to receive what God has done for you? Okay. Here's the other thing I know is that for a lot of you, Christian life has been about doing good things and not bad things. It's not been about the joy of the Lord. Today, you need to change that. You need to turn back to God and get your eyes back on the main thing. And we're going to celebrate that with you. It's the prodigal son. Go read Luke 15. Left and came to his senses and turned around and today you would say, I came to my senses. I'm going to give you an opportunity. This isn't for me. People are always like, what do you do when people don't stand? I go home. But today, you say, I'm coming back to the Lord. Get to your feet. Don't waste an opportunity. Amen. person in here running from God and he desires to turn back must have been a heck of a message stand up are you willing to be accountable to God and to say Lord I'm tired of the scoreboard
Hey, will y'all walk out the back and we're going to pray with you guys, man. We just want to help you take your next steps in faith. Listen, this is my prayer. That you don't walk out of here settling for the same old junk. That you'll start pressing into God. Pursuing Him. Following Him. Worshiping Him. Celebrating Him. Let's pray, Lord. Thank you. God, you are good. You are amazing. You are awesome. And I pray, Lord, that you would just turn the light on in our spirit. That wouldn't settle for rules, but would only cling to the God of the universe. We love you, Jesus. And we thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. That you destroyed the scoreboard. That you blew up the scale, God. Help us to live with you, in you, knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen.